Welcome to the Horrible Things Podcast. This is a true crime and disaster podcast where we talk about all things horrible, whether it be a murder, whether it be a building collapsing, just things that will just purely just make you cringe. My name is Emma Sexton and I am the host of this podcast and today I'm joined by... Kelsey Mullings. Yes, Kelsey, the long-awaited guest. We have been talking, yes. I feel like, about getting you on the podcast for like, ever. Since <laughs> the first episode, Yes, yeah, since its conception. <laughs> I've been like, okay, we need to get Kelsey on the podcast. And you're finally here. I'm very happy about it. I'm stoked. I'm excited to be here. I know. You're like the the OG fan of this podcast. I'm such a fan. <laughs> you have been listening to... I feel like you were actually probably the very first person to come up to me and be like, hey, I listened to the episode of the podcast. And I was like, yes. people are listening. And now here we are. Now you're on the podcast. Now it's, it's finally happening. Love it. So glad to be here. So as you know, we always ask the same question to every first-time guest on the podcast, and that is just, what is your involvement with true crime? How much do you know about it? When did you start, like, digesting true crime content, I guess, if you do? And what does it, like, mean in your life? What role does it play in your life, I guess? Okay. I feel like that's, like, where do I begin? I feel like there's a lot of little pockets of my life where true crime crime has kind of slipped in. Yeah. Um. Kind of where it started is my mom was a big fan of like Criminal Minds and um, NCIS shows like that. And so I was exposed to that world at a very young age. Um, and then what else? Oh, she also read a lot of murder mysteries, <laughs> which is so interesting because if you met my mom, I don't know if you've met my mom, but she's like the sweetest, nicest person ever. So it's kind of funny that she has that kind of like dark side to her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, oh, fun fact, I actually, like, have a couple of, like, true crime things in my life. So um, when I was older, I found out that in my house, before my parents bought the house, there was a murder-suicide. What? Yes. Explain more. How much do you know about so, this? I don't, I don't know a ton about it. I just know, like, gossip that the neighbors across the street shared with my parents, and then later they shared it with me. Um, but I guess it was a family and the dad like sent his kids outside to play and he shot his wife and he shot himself. Oh my gosh. Isn't in your insane? house. Yeah. In my house. It's kind of like just interesting to think about the fact that like there's a family living in that house now, or even you look at Grayson Mansion, it's like there's thousands of tourists walking through this house where this tragic event occurred. And it's just such an interesting, like. I don't know the history of that. And you would probably never know that if it, like imagine the family who lives there after your family probably will have no idea. Yeah. And I I don't think it like really affects anyone else in my family except for me, because when I heard that, I was like, oh, my gosh, this makes so much sense. Like I totally like felt like when I was younger that I felt things. It's like, definitely haunted. Supernatural. Oh, yeah. Um, and I I low key kind of believe in that stuff. So yeah. Um, yeah, so that's one thing. And then um, I also love the My Favorite Murder podcast. Yes. Um, a couple couple of my friends got me into that. And so that's been fun to just listen to. I'm not um, – I haven't – I'm not caught up on it at all. But I've listened to quite a few of their podcasts. Um, and then I think, like, I'm just kind of interested in that stuff in general. But 
the one time in my life where I was kind of like in detective mode um, was, you know this, but like I'm a survivor of a violent crime. And so when that happened, I I went into this mode of like, I need to know everything that happened within this event because for me, that kind of empowered me and made me feel like if I know everything, then someone on the street isn't going to come up to me and tell me what happened to me. Like I'm empowered and I know this stuff. Yeah. Um, and so that was that was like another like a scarier thing, but more like true crime event that I experienced. Yeah, for sure. I know that it's just like I I've had the privilege to have a couple people who have also been involved in violent crimes, like tell me their story. And I just feel like it's an it's super interesting how a lot of people who go through these like violent crimes tend to kind of look at true crime in a whole different light or like in a just completely new way after you experience something that obviously that tragic and that um, traumatizing. It's like I would imagine it's hard to look at true crime and just these events. You see it in a more realistic light probably than I do and probably than a lot of true crime podcast hosts or people that make shows about this sort of thing like do because it's just it becomes personal I would guess. Yeah and I think everybody handles those situations differently. Some people don't want to talk about it. Some people don't want to read about it. Some people want to stay away from it and forget that it ever happened. And for me, that like part of the healing process was trying to figure out to the best of my knowledge, like what happened and why that happened. And, you know, to kind of resolve that in your mind, like I didn't get the answers that I was looking for, but um, I just like doing that, like investigating for myself gave me a sort of peace about it. And I think also it's just people deal with their fear in different ways. And like I know for myself, when I ever since we were kind of talking about this a little bit earlier, but ever since I was a kid, like I've always been scared of like murderers and all this stuff. I think I watched too many true crime shows when I was a kid, but like I've always been scared of murders and I've also had many, many other fears in my life. Um, But I feel that there's something about no about knowing more about it about knowledge that makes you feel almost like you can tackle it like just a small anecdote from my my own life is I've always been terrified of the dentist I once read a book where the main character described um going to the dentist and having a fear of them dropping the tools in their mouth oh my and gosh after that I was always terrified of it and so when I was like 12 I had obviously had to go to the dentist as you do every single year <laughs> you should um and they were like, okay, we're going to, um, I had like a cavity. They were like, we're going to fill this cavity. And I started panicking. And so the only thing I could think to do is I was like, okay, well, can you give me a mirror? And they were like, what do you mean? Give me, give you a mirror. And they were like surprised because most kids it's just like, oh God, just get this out of my mouth. But, um, I like, they gave me a mirror and I just watched them do the entire procedure. Like I watched them put the needle in my mouth. I watched them fill the cavity. And to this day, anytime I have to go to the n- dentist, if they're going to do something, if they're going to give me a shot, I have a mirror and I will watch them do it. And I feel like there's, although I know having the mirror or not doesn't change anything about my experience. Something about n- having the control and like knowing what's happening and being able to see for myself like what's going on makes me feel less afraid. And I think it's that way for a lot of people, maybe to a lesser extent but or with different fears. But I do think that knowledge is power isn't just a thing about like, oh, smarter people can do more or whatever. It's about like, no, like having the having knowledge can help you like conquer your fears about things. 
yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's empowering. And something that's interesting, um, I've, I have a, a friend named Kirsty. She talks to me about um, kind of the empowering um, abilities of like these true crime podcasts. Um, she's actually the one who like recommended My Favorite Murder. Um, she just said because she's listened to that, she knows more about these crazy, creepy things that happen. And so because she knows more, she's empowered to, I guess, more aware of the things going around um, her and in her life. And so that if something happens, she's like more prepared to deal with it um, in, a, in a better way. Yeah, yeah. truly. Like Kirstie is also a friend of the show, but she's also just like a very... She, I, she and I have talked about true crime before, and she, I think, is a great example of, like, she feels, and I feel this way, too, for sure, of, like, listening to a true crime podcast isn't just about, like, hearing about these horrible crimes and stuff. It's about learning from them, in a way, of, like, maybe in the 70s or in the, even in the 80s, like, it was considered rude to not help someone out if they were, like, can I grab something from, can you help me grab something from my car? But mm-hmm. now it's, like we're okay we talk about these things and it's on this wider platform and now it's like if someone asked me a random dude asked me hey can you help me come get something for my car I'd be like absolutely not and run the other direction (laughs) yeah and that's talk to strangers (laughs) yeah no and even though it does make the culture a little bit more like tense I feel I do think it's a very very good thing that uh women especially now feel like they have I guess the right to say like no I'm gonna like act in my own self-interest and just be extra cautious because I guess better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, absolutely. But speaking of crimes, <laughs> as we do always on this <laughs> podcast, uh, today we are covering a super, super, super interesting case. Probably one of the most interesting cases I've heard of in, I guess, in the past couple months. Just um, I heard about this case in my true crime class. I'm taking a class called True Crime in the Media right now at my college. And... I'm learning a lot, watching a lot of serial killer movies, and this one in particular stood out to me because I had not heard about it before. There is murder involved, but it's super interesting, so I'm very excited to talk about it today. All right, let's do it. So I'm going to start out talking about this case by kind of going through from the perspective of um, Shannon Gilbert, who, okay, so Shannon Gilbert, she went missing in May of 2010, so obviously this is like a pretty recent case, Um, 10 years ago now, but still very fresh in our minds. Uh, And Shannon Gilbert was working as an escort in order to make her way through college. She was a very independent person. She was a self-starter. And the reason she was working as an escort was because she wanted to be able to pay her own bills and live on her own and like pay her tuition by herself. She was super intelligent. She graduated high school when she was 16 years old because she literally did one year of high school or two years of high school in one in the space of one year or like one school year. So she's super intelligent and uh, she had like a great relationship. I think a lot of times there's a stereotype that when someone becomes a sex worker, they like cut off all ties or they're not intelligent or that there must be something like horribly wrong with them to want to do that. But in this case, like she maintained a great relationship with her mom and her three sisters while she was working through this escort business. And it was really just to be able to pay her bills. And it's like. We all sometimes have that problem of needing to pay our bills. So it was her escort business that actually led her to meet her boyfriend. And he was a driver for this business. And things were good for a while while the two of them were like making money. 
But eventually the escort business got busted by the cops. It was all taking place in New York. So they did like the sting operation through a hotel and they busted the entire organization. And after that, the two of them were kind of in hard times struggling for money. So that was when the relationship took a turn and became more abusive. One time, uh, this boyfriend actually punched Shannon in the jaw so hard that her jaw bone like broke and she had to get a metal plate like inserted on the side of her jaw in the like surgically inserted to hold her jawbone together after that. So obviously not a great relationship to be in. Um, Unfortunately, they still stayed together after that incident until they actually were together until 2010 when that was when Shannon Gilbert disappeared. So her disappearance in 2010 happened because after her escort business got um, dismantled, obviously, She still needed to make money, so she started working through Craigslist, which is actually pretty common. I did not know that was a thing, but she posted photos on Craigslist, and she hired her own driver. So just because I'm assuming most people listening to this probably don't know much about uh, drivers and escorts, um, basically, it's kind of this, it's almost like a security guard, the driver is. So uh, someone who is a sex worker will hire a driver to take them to whatever call they're doing, and then the driver stays outside through the room, like the entire call and then they come outside and like if they're late or if they need anything they call the driver instead of the police basically and the driver goes inside and helps them out so shannon gilbert had hired this driver named michael pack to drive her around whenever she was on call from people on craigslist so it was in 2010 that michael pack drove her to a call in oak beach which is in long island it's like this small suburb of long island it's fairly wealthy and uh something i watched in this documentary about it was that oak beach is like not particularly well patrolled by the police or anything because it is such a small community and it's private so it's not really patrolled by the police it's very like wealthy people and there's a really small number of people that actually live in this community for it being on my long island and in new york uh but yeah it's a very small place and it, it was about an hour and a half to two hours outside of where shannon actually lived in uh new york city so she drives to this farther call out in oak beach and she's going to meet this guy named joe brewer and since she and Michael Pack didn't even get to this house in Oak Beach until like midnight. She was supposed to spend about five hours with him until it was light outside. And obviously Michael Pack was supposed to be waiting outside the whole time. So Shannon goes into the house. She meets Joe Brewer. Everything seems fine. And Michael Pack actually falls asleep in the driveway because it was pretty late. Obviously, he's just sitting in the car. It's a long time to be waiting. So he falls asleep. And This is where I, when I was first hearing the story, I was like, okay, something's going to go wrong, like, right here. You know, like, I was certain. I was like, okay, Joe Brewer, this must be the guy that is, like, putting this whole thing into action. But actually, Joe Brewer came out of his house. I think it was around 3 a.m., came out of his house, and he woke Michael Pack up, and he said, Shannon's acting crazy. She won't leave my house. Like, something is going on. I don't know what's happening. And so Michael goes in and Shannon is hiding behind the couch and she's talking to 911 on the phone. And obviously Michael Pack gets angry because he knows that if she talks to the police, both of them could get in trouble or get arrested. 
And so she he starts to panic a little bit. But during the call, which is actually a 23-minute 911 call, which hasn't been released to the public since this is technically still an open case. Um, during the call, she says, they're trying to kill me. And she starts panicking and runs out of the house. Now, Michael Pack had just walked into the house. And I when I first heard this, I was confused because obviously, like, if Joe Brewer was trying to kill her, why would he go outside and get her bodyguard, essentially, bring her into the house? And Shannon had been on the phone for 23 minutes. And during that entire 911 call, what we know is that there was never any, like, audio of Joe Brewer trying to hurt Shannon. So she starts panicking and runs out of the house. Michael didn't see any foul play, so he's just confused as to why Shannon's acting this way, especially because there's kind of this relationship between the escort and the driver where they're supposed to feel safe with their driver. Like, he was the one person in Oak Beach that she actually knew and could trust. They'd been working together for a while, and so he was confused why she was running away from him. Like, she didn't run out of the house and go to the car. She ran out of the house and started running down the street at, like, 3 in the morning. And she's just running away from this house full speed. She's Michael gets in his car and he starts looking for her because she's just gone. And she's like knocking on doors. She's trying to get someone to let her into their house, essentially. This um, guy named Dr. Michael Baden actually answered the door and he testified to the police that he offered her help. And as soon as she saw the headlights from Michael's car, she started bolting like she just completely got out of there. And so Michael Baden, he ran up to the car and he was like, I, I know what you're doing to this girl. And he was like, no, she's the one running away from me. Like he was Michael Pack was trying to explain to this doctor like what was going on. But it was just an extremely bizarre situation. And after that, after he had stopped um, Michael Pack, basically neither of them knew where Shannon had gone. And Michael Pack drove around in Oak Beach until it was light outside. But after that, he left because he said to the police that he assumed she'd found a way home. Not true at all because she was hours away from her home in New York City. And so she was just gone. Like he drove back to New York without her. Um, And so Shannon was eventually reported missing because obviously Michael Pack told her boyfriend. Her boyfriend told the family. And so it was up to the Suffolk County police to find where Shannon was. This, unfortunately, is where things start to go a little bit bad because the Suffolk County Police is like, okay, well, she's, you know, she's a sex worker. This happens sometimes. So we're just going to, like, let it lie for a couple days, a couple weeks, and see if anything turns up because to the police, apparently, at this point in time, uh, looking for a sex worker was not important to them. Jeez, that's so messed up. Yeah, it honestly is... There are... It almost seems like... uh, in several cases I've read about where sex workers are the ones who are killed, it there's always just this, like, well, it's not as important because, you know, they're a prostitute. And it's just like, okay, well. Yeah, there's this, like, attitude that they're putting themselves in dangerous situations, potentially. Yeah. It's like, this is a person, you know? Yeah. Like, she had family, and she's, this is a human being. So it definitely seems to me like it should be valued the same no matter what the profession but um, they reluctantly opened up the case and nothing was found for months. Like her mom and sisters were obviously horrified at this because the, what they'd heard from Michael Pack was just disturbing and they didn't know what to make of it. But fast forward to December, 
there's a police dog and this officer that are patrolling uh, off Ocean Parkway, which is like the main highway that goes through Oak Beach and a lot of Long Island. Uh, they're patrolling this like stretch of beach off Ocean Parkway because this is a cadaver dog. So cadaver dogs actually um, practice like their training on open cases for missing pe- missing people. So they're looking for Shannon, actually, and they're patrolling Ocean Parkway. And all of a sudden, the dog finds something on the beach. This cadaver dog finds human remains. And the remains of this person are found in a burlap bag lying on the beach. And basically, the police are called right away because the dog was looking for Shannon. And they assume, okay, we've found Shannon. So they're called an, optop- an autopsy is performed. It found that the person who was killed was most likely killed of homicidal strangulation. Um, and the body was fairly decomposed at this point. And they knew it was homicidal strangulation because there's this bone in your neck called the hyoid. I hope I pronounced that right. Hyoid bone. It's basically like a small bone on, in your neck. But when they find it broken, it tends to mean that a person was killed of homicidal strangulation. Uh, it's the bone that most often breaks. It hardly ever fra- fractures or breaks in a person who's, you know, not been killed. Uh, I think it's something like 0.00002% of people ever fractured that bone isolated, like without hurting other parts of their body. And most of it is people that have been strangled. Um, so they find this body and they do a test on the DNA. And there is one odd thing that they find about this body, and it's that the body isn't Shannon's at all. It's a completely different person. So the police obviously return to this area of Ocean Parkway right off and start looking at the beach. Uh, And two days later, they find three more bodies in the sand in burlap bags, all killed of homicidal strangulation. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And none of these people are Shannon. Jeez. So the police commissioner at the time is like, okay, there's a serial killer in Long Island. And they also soon found, like, after they had performed autopsies on the bodies, that all of these victims were also sex workers. And they'd all been working through Craigslist at their time of death. And they were all on call in Oak Beach. Whoa. Yeah. So Shannon's case... Had, like was very similar to the other four bodies that had been found near where they were looking for Shannon Gilbert. So these were the bodies of Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who was only 25 years old. She was advertising online. Uh, and then it was also Megan Waterman, Amber Lynn Costello, and uh, Melissa Bartholomew. I hope I pronounced that right. She was only 24 years old. And something that was interesting about her case was that Uh, When they went back to talk to the families of the girls whose bodies had been found, um, they talked to the teenage sister of Melissa. And what she had talked about was the fact that after her sister had disappeared, uh, which was a year ago that her sister had disappeared, after she disappeared, they had gotten her sister had gotten a series of calls on her cell phone made by Melissa's phone, like by some random man who was asking her, like, disturbing things, asking her if she was also a sex worker, making comments about her. And eventually, after a series of these calls, the person on this phone had said, I killed your sister. And then they never got another call ever again. And the police hadn't ever found her body until now. So they find that this one person had gotten a series of calls, and that was, like, pretty much the only lead they had at this time. 
And this is also especially interesting when you compare it to something that happened to Shannon Gilbert's family. So the two days after Shannon had been reported missing, uh, Mrs. Gilbert received a call and it was this guy who had her number, her home phone number. And she said, this guy said, my name is Dr. Peter Hackett and I run a home for wayward girls and your daughter is here and I just wanted to let you know that she's here. And Mrs. Gilbert immediately was like, okay, something is wrong. My daughter, although she was a sex worker, wouldn't go to a home for wayward girls because she always came home. She came home like every single weekend and she still had a good relationship with her family. And she knew that she would never give out her mom's phone number. Like Shannon would never give out her mother's personal phone number to a stranger. So after Dr. Peter Hackett called, he just like hung up and that was the last they heard of it. And no one thought it was weird until they took into account this other phone call that had been made to one of the victims who had been found in one of the burlap sacks on the beach, who was also a sex worker like Shannon and had and her family had also received a weird call after she'd been killed. Was it the same kind of call? Yeah, from the same they person? assumed it was a, from the same person because both calls were tormenting in nature, trying to torment the family. Mm-hmm. So although it was very like different, they they assumed it was from the same person, especially because Dr. Peter Hackett was like a medical doctor in Oak Beach, pretty much one of the only ones. Like, so people didn't drive to the hospital. They went to Peter Hackett and he didn't run a home for wayward girls. He had nothing to do with Shannon whatsoever. They had never met. Like, according to the timeline that the police had previously, Dr. Peter Hackett wasn't involved at all. The only way they connected him was because he had, for some reason, called Shannon Gilbert's mom two days after she was reported missing. But it wasn't actually him. Probably. (laughs) Well, we'll see. While this is all happening, obviously, they're connecting these dots. The police are actually continuing their search because all of these four bodies were found within, like, hundreds of feet of each other. All these bodies were found in pretty much the entire place. And two miles down the beach, even more bodies were found, actually. So the bodies of um, an Asian male who they believed was also most likely a sex worker um, and was probably a transgender person or was dressed in women's clothes when he was killed. Um, They're not 100% sure, obviously, because this is still an unidentified person. Uh, There was a mother with their toddler, two-year-old toddler. Two bodies were found. um, And they assumed that, like, Some of these bodies had been decomposing for like 10 years, but eventually in the end, they found five bodies that are still unidentified two miles down the beach from where these other four bodies were found. So a total of nine bodies they found? Yeah, on the beach after. And keep in mind, they had no idea that there was a serial killer operating. All this, all of these bodies were only found because of Shannon Gilbert and because she had called 911 and her family was making a big deal out of trying to find her. And so they it's just this one dog is like training and all of a sudden they find 10 bodies on the beach and they know, OK, there's a Long Island serial killer. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to guess. Did Shannon see something in was it Jason, the guy who hired her? Uh, Joe Brewer. Joe. Joe. OK. I'm going to guess it's Joe. You can think. Well, I, I don't know. Honestly, like, here's the thing. She saw something in his house. I'm going to spoil something for you right now. This case is still unsolved. Oh, shoot. No. There is 
probably most likely still a serial killer operating in the Long Island area today. Yeah, like it's Joe. Never caught. <laughs> well, it is it is kind of weird, but also Joe was one of the first people who was exonerated. Joe and Michael Pack. N- they weren't even suspects. Like they got taken in and questioned and that was all. That was like the end of it. Hmm. But I also had a similar thought where I was like, okay, we'll talk about this more then because okay. I have so many thoughts about this. Okay. But um, one of the bodies who they did find actually, so the beach they're on is called Gilgo Beach. And I'm not going to like fully um, say like every body they found here that's not in connection with the Long Island serial killer. But basically like 45 minutes away from where they found the first nine bodies, they also found 10 more bodies like 45 minutes away were they in burlap sacks also no only the first four were in burlap sacks okay so it is interesting because there's also a theory uh so they do believe that one of the unidentified one of the the jane does was most likely a sex worker however the they can't 100 percent confirm that the other four unidentified bodies were all sex workers so there was a theory for a while that there were two serial killers operating in long island because for some reason none of the rest none of the other five victims were found in burlap sacks only the first four and they were buried two mi- well not buried but they were laying in the ground two miles away so there was it is kind of like a crazy situation of they're not looking for anything and suddenly they have like 10 to 20 bodies it's just yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. And to think that this all happened in like 2010, 2011. Yeah. And you've probably never heard of it. No, I haven't. It's kind of crazy. It's very surprising. So, yeah, they find three Jane Does, one Baby Doe, and one John Doe. That's so sad, Baby Doe. Is that yeah. like that technical term? Yeah. People call him Baby Doe? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty horrible. And all of these, in the end, the Suffolk County Police guess that these nine bodies that they'd found are all the work of one serial killer just because all the bodies they found the autopsies they performed suggested that all of them were strangled so they know for sure that the first four women were killed by the same person and then the rest of them the rest of the bodies the jane and john does they believe were also killed by the long island serial killer and because of this because of this fact, they also called the Long Island serial killer the Craigslist Ripper because all almost all the women who were killed were working as sex workers online. Wait, so they call him the Craigslist Ripper? Like, yeah. Is that different than the Craigslist Killer? Because I've heard of the Craigslist Killer. Um, it might be the same thing. I didn't see killer, but it might, it very well might be the same thing. I know there's also, I know there's another person, another killer who lured people to their house online but i don't know if it was via craigslist or via another app okay because i've definitely heard of someone called the craigslist killer yeah yeah it's um weirdly it is not a safe place let's just put it that way it is not not a good place to meet people because there have, are you, have you ever people. used craigslist i have n- uh, my mom has okay. to sell like bookcases and stuff but she's never used craigslist um to like meet people so i haven't either but i've used offer up have you heard of offer up no so it's a similar similar thing but um it's a little bit newer um it's an app where you sell or buy 
items. Um, and so we were buying like a baby gate um, when we got our dog to like keep her out of a certain part of our apartment. Um, and I like Zach was working late at night. And so I went by myself to go get this baby gate. Oh, that, that is I not bought. safe. It was at night. It was at a um, storage place um and it felt very very unsafe and i did not have the wherewithal to like leave and just say you know what maybe i'll just buy one full price um but i'm alive i'm here and it wasn't too shady so um but i i've never used craigslist but i've done similar things like that yeah i don't honestly i'm wary of anyone that i meet (laughs) anyone online i guess in general because i i've heard so many horror stories about actually you want to hear a really graphic dating app story that i heard oh yeah okay so i saw this on twitter so beware it might not be true but it's still i feel the need to mention it because it was just so disturbing so it was the story about um this girl was like yeah my cousin she met this guy on bumble i think sorry bumble my cousins my cousin met his wife on bumble oh that's crazy well right Good things can happen on Bumble, too. Look at that. Okay. So take a, take both these into account. So she met this guy on Bumble, I think. And uh, they went out on a date. And she went to his house to, like, have dinner. So she ate this, like, stew dish at his house. They, like, had dinner. It was normal. Whatever. She goes home. And the next day, she starts violently um, getting sick, basically. Violently throwing up. And she goes to the hospital because she thinks something is seriously wrong with her. And when she goes to the hospital, they pump her stomach and they find human flesh. No. Because the guy had fed her a human body <gasps> at his house. That's a real life Sweeney Todd. That is that's disgusting. So gross. I saw that and I was like, okay, that's enough of Twitter for the next six months. Like, I'm done with you right now. Oh my gosh. I'm kind of yeah. like, I'm super thankful that I met my husband before like dating apps became a huge thing because that's just scary. I do not trust a dating app. There is so, there's so much that can go wrong. But I guess at the same time, look at that. You have a person in your life who met their wife. Yeah, that's true. And they're both very normal people. So yeah, so I'm sure, I'm sure it can work out just fine if you are 100%. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. (laughs) If you're very lucky and very cautious, but I just don't. I think maybe it, it's just a tale of like, maybe don't go to the person's house on the first date, the first time you meet them. Go somewhere public. Yeah. Like well, that's safe. And that's the thing about Craigslist too, is it's supposed to be kind of quote unquote safer because I don't think you're supposed to meet at houses. You're supposed to meet in a like public common area. Um, yeah. It's kind of creepy. We've, we've had like people come to our house. Oh yeah. 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 Cause mm-hmm. it's like if. If they need it, I think my mom sold like a hope chest once. Okay. Those things are like 100 pounds. Yeah, she didn't want to move it somewhere. Yeah, and... so she was like, just come to the house and you will like come outside. My mom's a perfectly normal person, but I could see like if I was buying something on Craigslist, I'd be like, no, 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 even if it was a normal human being. But also it's like, maybe it's just because I feel a little bit more inclined. This is probably so wrong, but I just feel more inclined to trust women when I'm on those sort of things. Like we've met up with women at their houses before because of like craigslist and things like that Mm -hmm. but i know that's wrong too it's just like uh my own prejudices get in the way of yeah i mean that's being safe sometimes that's kind of natural like we think women are safer 
Yeah. Uh, I told a story on this <laughs> podcast about a lady who told another lady that she got one of her items delivered and then tried to kill her. So, oh my gosh, the pregnant lady. Yeah. So that, that was such an intense episode. That really was. Honestly, all the I've survived stories are super intense because it's just like there's a lot riding on every moment. Yeah. And well, you know, you have more detail probably with those stories. And so you know more of what happened. Um, yeah. That one I remember was very intense. Did you ever watch I Survived? Like when it was still. No. It's I actually on, hadn't heard of it until I was started listening to um, murder podcasts. Yeah. It's on Amazon Prime. Okay. It's like they have, I think, all the seasons on there. And it's very, they don't do, like, specifically true crime. They obviously have a lot of true crime stories on there. But it's also, like, I got attacked by a lion and this is how I survived. Wow. Yeah. So it's a very interesting show. Good show. I'd recommend. Cool. But anyway, getting back to murder. Um, So pretty much the only, like, things that have been identified to the public at this time in this case is they sent out a sketch of a lot of the um, of the Jane and John Doe's, and also they there's this horrible sketch out there of the corpse of a mother with her two year old child still like in her arms when they drew the sketch, which seems unnecessarily like sad to me. But um, they released all those sketches to the public. Is that None how they of- found the body? Oh yeah. my gosh. None of those people have ever been identified, sadly. Uh, and they knew that none of those people were uh, Miss Gilbert, obviously. They knew none of those people were Shannon because remember how earlier I told you that she'd been with her abusive ex or her abusive boyfriend and he hit her jaw. Mm-hmm. So she had a metal plate. So none of these bodies had a metal plate in their jaw. So they knew right away that none of these people were Shannon. And especially because this is kind of graphic, but. Uh, the bodies were decomposed enough that they didn't need to do x-rays because they could see the jawbones of these people who they were finding, uh, which clearly showed that a lot of them had been dead for far longer than, you know, a couple months or a year. They'd been dead for a really long time. Uh, so they find all these bodies at Gilgo Beach off off the parkway, and people in Oak Beach are getting a lot of press from New York. Obviously, New York is like the biggest place for news, media, entertainment in the world, pretty much. So all the news stations in New York are carrying stories about Long Island serial killer. It becomes this huge thing. They have tons of interviews of like, Oak Beach is this small community. So they have tons of interviews with like citizens being like, oh, we want the press out of here. We get it. There's sex workers and all this stuff. And it's just really like disturbing because you see all these people that are just more concerned with themselves i guess than the fact that there's probably a serial killer living in their community because like i said oak beach is like kind of far out of the way and also what is the coincidence that a person who's a sex worker from craigslist like all these other victims would come to oak beach and then disappear and then they find all these bodies like uh there are no coincidences as they say in murder cases at least in my opinion most of the time so i just like I've I've watched all those old clips and it's kind of just like maybe think about other people for a second like take a minute and so there's tons of press all in this small community and people are like freaking out I would say they're in kind of a panic as you would and I would both be if suddenly we found bodies on the beach near where we lived Um, so at first the police are kind of just suspectless 
they obviously investigate Joe Brewer and they exonerate or not exonerate, but they never charge him with anything. Um, so after that, they look toward Peter Hackett. So when Mrs. Gilbert and her daughter had gone to Oak Beach before uh, Shannon's body was ever found or anything, they went to Peter Hackett's house and they said, why did you call me? Like, why did you call me? And how do you know my daughter? Because he had never been in connection with her before. He had never, I mean, he had never um, hired her before or anything. So they were like, how do you know my daughter? And he was like, I never made that call. What? He's like, I don't know who you are. I don't know who Shannon Gilbert is. I never made that call. And after more police work and investigation, they find like a year later that he had indeed made that call. Oh, he's shady. So he he did call the family and he had denied it for like a year almost. And then they were like, so how did you get my phone number? And he just didn't have an answer, really. So the police are still investigating him like for up until the point where eventually they found Shannon's body. And they found the body of Shannon Gilbert in 2012. It had been 19 months after she was first declared missing. So her family had obviously been going through a lot for the past like year and a half pretty much and she was actually found when they decided to step away from the beach and they looked in the marsh so in long island in oak beach there's a lot of this like marshy area where it's like water so you can't just walk through it or you can't drive through it so they had this like giant truck roll through and they were like looking for more bodies because keep in mind every time they'd gone out to search they'd found like five more bodies five more people so they go out to search in this like marshy area and all of a sudden they see a purse and they see a pair of jeans and then they find the remains of Shannon Gilbert like yards away from all of her belongings in this marsh and so they are confused as first of all confused as to how she had managed to make it this far into the marsh because she it was, like, impossible to walk through there. There's, like, if you've ever seen a, you probably haven't, but there's videos of Oak Beach, especially this marsh, like, videos of them rolling these giant tools through it. And one of the things that is there is there's these giant sticks that poke out of the mud, like, pretty much everywhere that are, I would say, up to, like, my chest. And you would have to, like, fight. You'd pretty much need, like, a machete to get your way through there because there's just no, like, there's no walking through that. Not to mention that there's, like, water, mud. It's just... It would take so much effort to get as far out as Shannon had gotten from the entrance of where she'd been running on the street. And so she's like, she's not as decomposed as all the other bodies because of the fact that she'd been in the mud basically since, they assume, since that night that she had run away. She'd been killed pretty much immediately after. And so they find her body naked in this marsh and her family is obviously called right away. They give a press conference. And one of the things that the police find a little bit interesting is that guess whose house backs up to where this marsh is, to where her body was found? Joe's. Peter Hackett. Oh, Peter. Yes. So his on the left side of where his house is, like a couple hundred feet out, is her clothes and her belongings. And then to the right side of his house... Is her body. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and he lived there they, the whole time. Yeah. And when they took Mrs. Gilbert 
and her daughter to see like the excavation and to see where the body was. Do you want to know? Guess where they where they brought them to the deck of Peter Hackett's house, because that is where you could get the best view of where the bodies were, of where the body was and where her belongings were from his deck in the backyard, basically. So, Mrs. Gilbert, I again, like I said, this is still a cold case. No one has ever been arrested. No one's ever been charged. In 2017, they uh, said the suspect, they called uh, this man named John Bitrolf. He was a suspect because he's known to, he lived in the Long Island area while these crimes were most likely committed. And he's also charged for killing two other sex workers in a different state, I believe. So, he's the most current suspect. But um, Peter Hackett was never charged with anything, although he was a suspect. He lives in Florida now, I think. And uh, he just, like, Mrs. Gilbert has spoken. Her opinion many times is that she believes Peter Hackett is responsible. But now that we've kind of gone through the facts of this case of, like, that was the last body they found belonging to what they believe is the Long Island serial killer. But there's a couple things in this case that make me curious, I guess, because there's a couple things that don't add up. So my my questions are just kind of like, what are the odds that Joe Brewer hires a hires an escort from Craigslist where all the other escorts who'd been found dead were hired from and that she starts panicking and calls 911 saying that someone's trying to kill her the night that she is killed and the only person in that house was Joe Brewer. However, his house did back up on to the beach where all the other bodies were, pretty much. So they assume that when these bodies had been dumped, it's actually really like sad because you see there's the police commissioner at the time. He made a statement to like this. I watched this documentary by People Investigates. Great documentary. Highly recommend. But um he gives a statement where he's like, what are we dealing with here? A dumping ground? Because there's so many bodies dumped on this beach that no one had known about before that they were just kind of like, I guess, horrified. And they're like, what are the odds that we go looking for this one person who's still missing and we find all this? And her similarities with the other victims are just very disturbing. But then at the same time, what is the, what are the odds that Peter Hackett, if they assume they believe that she was killed the night that she made that 911 call, how did he have her mother's phone number two days later? And the fact that there's a similarity between her and uh, Melissa, one of the other victims, that she also, her family got weird calls after she'd been killed. So what are the odds of that happening? Not to mention something I mentioned in the, I'm getting to my theory which is something I mentioned in the very beginning, is that in her 911 call, which unfortunately still isn't public, um, she says, they're trying to kill me. Not he's, not like Joe, mm-hmm. not someone, they're, as in two. So it's just very like, and also Michael Pack was outside, but since he f- fell asleep, like who? there's kind of a gap in time of like who could have been there. Right. So... It's very confusing. And I could see how the police would be confused by this case. But something that I don't understand is the police theory behind this is that while the other uh, nine, I believe actually 10 victims who were found on the beach, there was uh, another woman who was found in April 
Um, but just part of her body was found there. And they believe that's another um, body found to the Long Island serial killer. But what are the odds that these 10 bodies are found on the beach? And then, obviously, Shannon Gilbert, who said someone's trying to kill her. And the police theory is that Shannon Gilbert was having a mental breakdown and ran into the marsh and drowned in the marsh. That's a theory? That is the police theory. Like, the official, that's what they believe happened. They don't, like, really think she was murdered at all. Hmm. They think it's a coincidence, kind of, that these other ten bodies are found with striking similarities to Shannon. And that, I guess they could say that her death might have been caused because she was trying to run away. But it doesn't explain so many things. Like, one, the fact that there were only a few inches of water in the marsh. So how did she drown in a few inches of water? Why were all of her clothes removed? And why did she not have any of her belongings? Why would she take off all her clothes if she was in the marsh? And three, it doesn't explain um, the weird phone call. Because why would Peter Hackett have her number or her mom's number or her phone? And actually, there is one more thing that it does not explain. Which is, which I'm forgetting? Question mark? No, no, no. I'm not forgetting this. It doesn't explain why Joe Brewer, like, wasn't investigated more for having why did she call 911 in the first place if she just drowned because of a mental breakdown like why would she yeah and also her hyoid bone was broken the, oh okay i was going to ask that yeah so her family actually paid for one of the top um i medical examiners in the country to perform an autopsy on her body and they found that her hyoid bone was broken so therefore they can't rule out homicidal strangulation although the police station had said it was drowning Wow, this is so interesting. So my initial thoughts are could I don't know, I don't want to let Joe off the hook. Something <laughs> something about her calling from his house. Like there was no signs of her being crazy or having mental breakdowns before, were there? Well, there was a history of mental illness in her family. So actually, I was going to talk about this later, but that was kind of a perfect segue. Okay. Her youngest sister, I believe her name's Sarah, she had, um, I think it was schizophrenia. And so in 2016, actually, her youngest sister, Sarah, murdered her mother, <gasps> murdered Mrs. Gilbert. Oh, because, my gosh. And it was an actual case of like, she she's in a mental institution now because it was an actual case of like, pleading insanity she thought um she apparently thought that her mother was trying to kill her and so when she wasn't and so she killed her mother and now she's in a mental institution so they used history of mental illness in the family to kind of say well maybe shannon was having a mental breakdown wow so much tragedy in one family that's really sad yeah um but that happened after shannon yeah, that happened in 2016. Died. So it okay. was like pretty much six years later. Hmm. So they're like, oh, conveniently, now we can use this yeah. excuse or we can use this. To keep yeah. looking at this as an option. Although they know for sure that there is a serial killer in Long Island. Right. Even just by the first four bodies, they knew that. So, man, I think, like, is there any possibility that Joe and Peter were working together? That's my theory. That's my theory. Although I have to say, guys, really quick. Disclaimer, this case is still unsolved. Nothing I'm saying here is 100%. It is a theory. This is not necessarily the truth. Obviously, the police don't even know what happened. Her family doesn't know what happened. 
there none of the victims' families know what happened. Obviously, I don't know what happened. But this is just based off the facts that I've read, which you have to keep in mind are not the complete facts because certain aspects like the 911 call have not been released. This is an open case. This is just my opinion. And these people may be 100% innocent. And everything we're saying here has probably already been stated by the media. Okay. (laughs) Pure speculation. That was a really good disclaimer, Emma. (laughs) Thank you very much. Want to make sure that I don't get sued one day or something like that because all of these things are my opinion. Right. Sorry, Joan, Peter, if you are innocent. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just seems like there are too many coincidences, like Peter living right there, um, next to the marsh and then her calling while she was at Joe's house and the fact that these other people that were found, these other bodies were also sex workers from Craigslist. And so you have to, you have to wonder about Joe because he hired, he hired her from Craigslist and yeah. Who else did he hire? You know, exactly. Was it just a one-time thing for him, or has he done this before? And is this is this his way of finding people to murder? Yeah, my theory about it is that them working together gives them both the perfect alibi. You know what I mean? Like they can't place Peter Hackett there the night that she was killed, but they can place him there with her phone two days later. And they can't place Joe Brewer behind Peter Hackett's house, but it's a convenient place that she could have been killed. And not to mention the fact that she implied in her 911 call that two people were threatening her. That it could have been that maybe Peter Hackett was also in the house or maybe he was behind the house and made some sort of threatening gesture. Joe Brewer comes out and he can play innocent because Peter Hackett's already following her. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Um, do you know? Did Peter have an alibi for that night? Uh, I believe, I believe he did, but I think it was just that he was with his family or something. I don't think he was seen at an event. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it seems like there are too many things that could be coincidental for those two not to be involved. Yeah, it just seems. I I a hundred percent agree. It's just too much. Um, because what. What is the other option that it just so happens that she had a breakdown in Oak Beach that night, ran into a marsh and drowned, and then while they're looking for her, they also find other sex workers from Craigslist, and it just so happens that she said someone was trying to kill her that night. It just does. It really makes no sense any other way than, okay, this is a serial killer, and probably these other two people are involved somehow. And maybe they're involved with the other victims, too. And maybe they both were serial killers separately and then started working together. Like, you never... There's so many different, like, okay, this is this could definitely be involved. But it's just too coincidental. Is that common, though? Like, people working together? No. Serial killers working together? No. Serial killers usually do work alone. Okay. They're usually... Yeah, they're usually on their own. I don't... I don't... I don't ever I I don't actually know of any serial killer who's had a partner, but that might be just me not knowing something. But I'm I mean like Bonnie and Clyde. Right. I've heard <laughs> of a like, case um gosh, and I don't even remember that much about the case, but it was like a husband and wife. Yes. Okay, I know which one you're talking about, okay. I think. With the car and they yes. would, yeah. Like put people in boxes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I've heard of that too. I guess I should be more specific. I've never heard of a case where two people weren't romantically involved. Mm, yeah. 
you know what I mean? But I'm sure it's possible because there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of shows, I'm sure you've seen this, and a lot of actually like psychology behind people that kill in pairs about how usually there's like one dominant person and one more submissive person that just takes orders from the dominant killer. Mm-hmm. But like there, I'm, I'm sure there, there could be a case of it where it's a serial killer doing that, but I've pretty much only heard of it in like single pairs of murders where they do that. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting you say that. So I'm going to segue just for a second. Um, I was recommending the Columbine book that um, I've read. And one thing that's really interesting in this book is it talks about the the two teenage boys who were the killers. And um, it's, it's really interesting to see that that kind of um, like more dominant personality and one more submissive personality plays out in that case also. Yeah. I think it happens in most... Um this past week, I watched the movie for... Have you heard of In Cold Blood? It's by um, Truman Capote. It's like one of the very first really popular true crime books. It was written a long time ago. I think, gosh, in the 50s or 60s or something. It was written a while ago. Um, and it basically follows this pair of murderers who killed an entire family. So four people. And um, one of them was a much more dominant person both were put on death row and so Truman Capote got to go and he sat with them he did like hundreds of hours of interviews with them and he had like my teacher told me he had 8,000 pages of notes about the case um and he did these interviews with them to I guess study them in a way like these people on death row and see what makes you kill someone and they found uh his findings were that and I find this really interesting that Neither of these people could have done it on their own, but when their personalities came together, it formed almost a third person, like a third personality that was created by the two of them being together in this, that neither of them would have done it if it was just them on their own. But when they were together, they gave each other the ability to do it. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So wait, is that the guy that Mindhunter is based off of? Truman Capote? No. That's um, based off someone who worked in the FBI. Truman Capote was a journalist. Okay, okay. And an author. But there's a, uh, it's a great movie. It's really long, but it's very interesting. And I think it, it could be almost one of those situations where maybe the two, if, if it was two people who did it, maybe they are just normal people or somewhat normal people on their own. But when you meet someone else who has that, I guess, urge to kill in a way or the willingness to kill it can kind of spur off spin off into its own like into two different these people who may have their own personalities become almost this one like person who's okay with murder because the other two people are kind of okay with it wow that's so interesting yeah i find it super it's one of my favorite things i've learned about so far because I don't know. Me, per- I think everyone's interested in a different aspect of true crime. Me personally, I'm super interested in the psychology behind people that kill because it's just like I could never imagine doing that. Yeah, like, it would make me sick to my stomach. You don't understand it for yourself, and so you're trying to you're trying to understand the why behind these terrible things that happen. Yeah, I think a lot of us are because it's just you don't want to think about the fact that someone could just kill just because they want to. Right. You just want to look for the explanation, look for the reason. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's hard when you don't have an explanation or a reason. Um, Like I was saying, with the case that I was personally involved in, like we didn't get the motive. We didn't get the explanation. And so 
it's like it's hard to wrap your mind around why it happened when you don't have that motive. Yeah, that kind of also reminds me of um, something my teacher said. And one of the women from People Investigates actually came into our class. And one of the things she said was, um, even, you can find out everything about the case. Like you can know every detail down to the minute, but they'll never use the word uh, closure in anything they make. They never want to use the fact, oh, the family needs to find closure. Oh, the person needs to find closure. Because at the end of the day, there's really no closure for anything like this. You know, like just because you know who did it, just because you know why they did it doesn't fix it in any way. You know, it doesn't make it easier to deal with as time goes on. It doesn't bring back the person that the family lost. Right. It doesn't bring any closure. It just is supposed to bring justice. That's really what it is. And I think it's, especially in this case, like, it's really tragic to look at, okay, here's 10 people, possibly more, who may not have been found, uh, one including a child, a two-year-old kid, that have been murdered. And they ha- there's no justice for them. There's no justice for them. And I think part of the reason, I think, unfortunately, part of the reason for that is because uh, some of the victims of this crime were seen as less important. Mm-hmm. And it's just like tragic to think about the fact that we would ever value a human life differently, you know, based on profession or circumstance or, you know, any reason like that. And so I think that this case is particularly interesting because, one, you don't really see a lot of modern serial killers, I feel like. And two, because it's a cold case. And you're like, at least in my mind, I'm like, shouldn't this be shouldn't we shouldn't this be solved by now like come on we all the other serial killers i know about like they've been found you know we we know who they are we make we write books about them we make movies about them and there's something almost more sinister about the fact that someone just gets away with it absolutely yeah and i think when you hear this case and immediately it pops into your head like there's at least two suspects that you know, that we can think of that I wonder of like how how much did the police really look into these people? Um, and I don't know, I, I would be really interested to just dig more and see like like how how much did they look into Joe and Peter and if if they were like let off easy, you know? Yeah, it's a. Uh... I, I do trust the police a lot, but, and you can't necessarily, I obviously have no experience being a police officer. I don't know what it's like. Uh, and I do have great respect for a lot of police officers. I mean, look at Paul Holes. He's like a, everyone in the true crime community tends to love him and he's a police, he was a police officer. It's like, there's, it's just, you don't want to consider the fact that maybe it wasn't looked into as much as it should have been. Mm-hmm. And also it's scary to think about the fact that what if the person who committed these crimes is just out there living their life? Yeah, waiting for their next victim. Waiting for their next victim. It could be doing reading the articles about them. It's just horrifying. Yeah. I also think it's kind of crazy how many um, unknown bodies were found. Like, like yeah. this, I mean... It couldn't have happened more than like 20 years ago, could it? I don't know. Like how how long were those bodies t- 
decompressing there on the beach and like even especially like the mother and the young child like weren't people looking for them yeah no it's 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 horrible to think about and just think about the fact of like how did we not know for 15 years this is long island new york this is not the middle of nowhere you know what i mean this is like a well-known community in long island new york which right. everyone and knows about. Jerry Seinfeld is from there. <laughs> like, how do we not, how does this still happen it, in 2010? It's, that's what I think about because I think in my mind and probably in a lot of people's minds, serial killers are a thing of the 70s and 80s. And then you're like, well, not today, not with cameras, not with modern technology, not with DNA, but here we are. And it's 10 years later and they, there's no one. Yeah. I think that is, that's the craziest part of that is that this was just 10 years ago and all yeah like how could they not have known so many people in that area were missing or killed um that's that's weird i don't know it is weird now i'm starting to like doubt the police force in that area (laughs) like dang what what was going on in that community yeah and i think part of it, it does come down to people saying oh well they're sex workers yeah so honestly it's just like you look at this case and it's just an example of like the tragedy of not, I guess, identifying anyone, anyone, any victim as a person. Like mm-hmm. first and foremost, it's this is a human being like this is 10 human beings more who've lost their lives regardless, like no matter who they were. You should be we should be looking the exact same. We should be looking the same as uh, in every case, whether it's. Uh, Jean Benet Ramsey, or whether it's a sex worker, whether yeah. it's Shannon Gilbert, we should be looking the same amount. Mm-hmm. And it's like every person, every human being who is a victim deserves the same respect in like the amount that we care about their death. Absolutely. And that's just public decency. Truly. But yeah, this is a. This case scares me, I think, more than other cases just because it is a cold case where the killer is probably still alive. And uh. that freaks me out. But I'm I'm hopeful. I mean, I look at cases like the Golden State Killer where it may have taken 50 years, but or not 50, but it may have taken decades, but it's solved now. And like he's going to jail and the families get the justice, at least, of knowing like what happened to their loved ones. So I think even if it may take time, I do have hope. And this is still an open case. They're not just like giving up on it. It's not. That's good. Yeah. So, yeah, that is the case of the Long Island serial killer. Ooh, Craigslist. What is he called? Craigslist. Ripper. Ripper. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So I think on that horrible, horrible note, <laughs> kind of a scary episode. Yeah. It's time to transition to my favorite segment on this show. Happy things. It's like walking okay. through a door, th- that noise. A magical door. <laughs> a magical door that lets me into a field, a meadow of joy where I can talk about good things. <laughs> so, Kelsey, do you want me to go first or would you like to go first? Sure, you go ahead. Okay. So my happy thing for this week is that I am, oh my gosh, I'm reading the best book right now. It's called Fangirl. It's by Rainbow Re- Rowell. I hope I'm saying that right. But it's basically this book about this girl who it's her like her freshman year at college and she's like learning how to integrate, I guess, and like let go of childhood in a way. And it's just like the 
it's so good. It's such a good book. And I'm like freaking out over it because I just relate to the character so much of like, it's also my freshman year of college. And I just feel like a very strong connection to the main character. And I'm having a grand old time reading it. It's probably what I'm going to do right after we're done recording is go read that book because it is amazing. And like, yeah, I just feel like there's nothing reading a book is such a good way to like not think about how crappy things are sometimes and I just love like escaping into someone else's world I guess so I'm I'm a big fan of that book and also um I'm loving my true crime class so that's a good thing that's awesome when is your class over in a month oh wow okay yeah do you when do you go back to school I go back Tuesday through Thursday okay and then come back to the hometown because it's just you know I don't want to, no one is there right now because it's interterm and we've been like covering all these serial killers and one of the cases we heard about was uh, the Gainesville Ripper who I actually covered on here but we watched uh, like a documentary about him and it was like about college students getting killed in their dorms and so I just don't want to be there when it's not necessary because I get a little freaked out when it's just me pretty yeah, much. Yeah and there's not like a ton of people on your hall. There's literally like five people in my entire hall there right now and it's just creepy all the time so I'm like okay I'll just be there Tuesday through Thursday and then hang out with people I know yeah. <laughs> the other time so yeah but overall it's been a good experience and I've just been yeah things have just been good. Life's That's good. Awesome. Love it. Um, so I'm like, I'm trying to think of what's what's good coming up this week. I've been off of work for the last three weeks because yes. I'm a teacher and like you get, it's not random, but you get um, long breaks throughout the year, which I'm so grateful for. Um, and so I've just had a really nice time off. I'm excited to go back and see my students. Um, but I'm actually doing something really cool on Sunday next week. I'm going to a macrame class. What is that? Macrame. So it's um, it's you've seen it. You know what it is. It's like ropes that are knotted together. And a lot of times you'll see it in like wall hangings or like pot hangers, like plant hangers. I may know what this is. You know macrame. I'll show you a picture. Yeah, I'm sure I do. Um, And so I I've never done macrame. And I love I love going to any kind of art class just because it's it's fun to learn a new skill, but also just kind of like get out of your own head and try something different true and so I'm going to um a macrame event next week with um awesome my um cousins my sister-in-law my mother-in-law and just some other people so I'm stoked yeah that's awesome oh my gosh that's a fun one no one's ever said that before (laughs) I feel like there's something about taking a break and doing something you know you don't have to be good at that is very relaxing yeah. And so I like I totally feel the same way. I'm not a great fine artist. Like I can draw by grid um, pretty well, but I'm pretty sure most people can do that. <laughs> um, but I love I love practicing and, and learning new things. And that's why I became a graphic designer, because I was like good with a computer and like I felt like I was creative. But I, I don't know that I had all the motor skills necessary to be a great fine artist. And so. Like, that's why I love photography and graphic design is because I can still express creativity um, through those outlets. Yeah, that's awesome, Kelsey. Well, I think we're going to end the episode here. All righty. Thanks for having me on. It was so much fun. Yes.
Thank you guys so, so much for listening. If you want to get more of Horrible Things when it is not a Tuesday, you can go ahead and find us on pretty much all social media platforms at Horrible Things Podcast. If you want to support the the patron, no, support the podcast, you can go find us at patreon.com slash horrible things. And if you want to support in another way, you can go ahead and give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot. It helps other people find the pod. But most importantly, thank you guys so much for listening. It's your support and your listening hours that really like make the difference and just make this podcast uh, great. I think personally that we have the best listeners in the entire world. And I don't say that just to pander to you guys. <laughs> but uh, thank you guys just so much for listening. Make sure to share with your friends, with your family. And most importantly, do not forget that if you find a weird looking sack on the beach, call the police. And don't go to a stranger's house of someone that you meet on Craigslist. And most importantly, don't, don't do horrible things. things.